Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. I want you to know that whether you are a first-time guest with us or maybe you would still consider yourself new to the Oaks or maybe you would call the Oaks your church home, I'm so thankful that you are here worshiping with us. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, as Jimmy said, we have a couple of gift bags for you in the back. We'd love for you to grab one of those. We have a Bible for you or maybe a Bible that if you're here every week, there's someone that you want to uh, give a Bible to, please take one of those as you leave today. Um, for those of you who are here with us every single week, you know that we are currently working through the book of Romans. And where we are at this morning in our commitment to preach verse by verse, we find ourselves in Romans 9. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to turn to Romans 9, because that is where we will be spending our time this morning. Now, uh, just a quick word of warning, as you flip your Bible open to Romans 9, uh, there might be a stick of dynamite that falls out in your lap, because this is one of the most controversial chapters in Scripture. Uh, we just looked at Romans 8 a couple weeks ago, and you know, we would say that perhaps that is one of the most comforting chapters in all of Scripture. And then we come to Romans 9. Jimmy introduced it last week, spent time looking at the first 18 verses, and as uh, we hope to close it out this week, uh, we will see that this, this passage is designed for us to behold our God. It was not designed for debate. It's not designed to make us confused. It was designed to make our hearts awestruck at the mercy of God, the wonder of his sovereignty, the depth of his love, the power displayed in his justice. And so I think if, if we really wrestle with this text as Paul is inviting us into, that we will see God for who he is and that our hearts will come to a place of worship and we will see the depth of God's mercy shown to sinners. That's, that's at the heart of what we see in Romans chapter 9. That how God's justice displays God's mercy. Whenever I think of uh, receiving mercy that is unexpected, I think of a particular moment in my life a few years ago where I found myself in the Hamilton County Courthouse. Uh, now I'll, I'll rewind a little bit uh, just to, to give you some context. So. Uh, I've told this story before, but I haven't told it in a year. So this is my annual telling of this story. But it bears repeating because it is so applicable whenever we come to a passage like this. Now, many of you know that whenever we were constructing our house that we currently live in, uh, one of the least of my priorities was making sure that the grass was cut, right? Like in my opinion, there were a lot of things that deserved my attention more than cutting the grass in my front yard. Well, what I found is that uh, Hamilton County in the city of Cincinnati did not have the same opinion of priority that I did. Uh, because in the mail, I got this red card uh, with bold letters that said, you have been fined $250 for letting your grass exceed eight inches. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. No warning. No, just like a, a, a fine of $250 that I was required to pay in 30 days because I had broken this law that had been passed to try to like beautify neighborhoods and to keep things looking great. And I'm just like, come on, you're like, you've got to be kidding me. And so on the back of the card, I flip it over and there were a few options. Uh, one was to pay this fine. And I'm like, there is no way I'm doing that. This feels unfair. And then two, it was to contest this fine in court. 
And so the, the risky part about that is that if you contested this in court and then you were found guilty, they would actually double the fine, right? Because it's like you're wasting their time. And so they're like, all right, we'll go from 250 to 500 and see if you really care that much. Uh, and so I was like, well, I mean, if you know me, I can be like petty about the smallest of things. And so this was like right up my alley. And so I, of course, I like go and mow my grass first and then take pictures to prove that the, the issue has been completely resolved email them to Hamilton County. And then I also say, I would like to contest this in court, you know, all this kind of stuff. So anyways, court date comes uh, and, and I'm reciting my, my whole plan, my game plan for pleading not guilty and saying that I'm innocent as I'm sitting there in the courtroom. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, all right, well, I can say that I resolved it. I can say that my case is unique. I wasn't actually guilty of, of doing what they said. It wasn't all over the yard. It was just kind of, you know, like, 20 foot by three foot strips that were this high, but compared to the whole lot, it seems really minuscule. Like I've got the whole thing like mapped out in my head about how I'm going to say that I'm not guilty. And about that moment, the judge comes into the courtroom. And, uh, and so then I, you know, I'm like sweating. Like you could, you could literally see the handprints on the desk in front of me from the sweat that were, was coming off of my hands. And, uh, and he says, Mr. Kirkland, um, is it true that you're here on trial to contest, you know, uh, the infraction of, you know, having grass that was over eight inches or, or whatever it was? And I said, yes, sir. And so there's a, you know, city representative to my right. And then he says, okay, uh, do we have picture evidence of this infraction? And I'm like, oh, did not see that coming, right? And so then on the big screen, like to my left, pictures just start scrolling of my yard with like, you know, grass like up to here. And I'm like, oh, like my, my plan is unraveling in my hands. And so, uh, so then um, the judge says, uh, Mr. Kirkland, how do you plead? Do you plead guilty or not guilty? And I was thinking, all right, well, you know, like, do I, do I stick with it? Like, is this my chance to really say, like, I'm in a unique case here? Like, there was construction going on, like, people should have known. And, and so I'm, I'm, like, wondering what to do. And then the judge kind of leans forward and says, trust me, plead guilty. And I'm like, no, like, I know the double fine thing. Like, I know all of that. He says, trust me, plead guilty. And I think he could, he could see the surprise and confusion on my face. And he just kind of gave me a nod. And, you know, the city representatives over here just being silent. And I'm like, all right, like, I'll take your word for it. And so I, I said, I plead guilty. And, and what I didn't understand is that at the moment that I pled guilty, I, I threw myself into the mercy of the judge. Because he could, he could be just he could give me the just punishment that I deserved for my guilty infraction, which would have been a $250 fine, a $500 fine at that point. But he also was the only person with the power in that room to say, all right, well then, if you're guilty and you've admitted to this infraction that you've committed this law that you've broken, then I can, I can rule your case in any way that I desire. And that was the case. I, I said, I, said I, I am guilty. And he said, uh, Mr. Kirkland, we will not hold this infraction against you. You're not required to pay any fine of any amount. And in fact, uh, let it be known that I want a letter put on file for Mr. Kirkland's yard that for the next year, still during this time of uh, construction, that they would be immune to this same penalty or charge being brought against him. Now, my story points to a greater story because in that case, the judge would have been completely just to make me pay, to make me pay double, 
to, to assess my situation and say, this is the penalty that you deserve. But the judge was also completely just and right to extend mercy. That he could look at my particular situation and, and extend mercy and still uphold the law that was given. You see, my, my story points to a greater story in that God can be just and merciful. That he is not obligated to show mercy to those that have transgressed his law, but that whenever we come into the courtroom of God and every sin that we have committed and every holy law that we have broken is placed on the screen before our eyes as evidence of our clear guilt before God, that he can say, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And he is able to uphold justice and simultaneously extend mercy. Now, is that same judge that I had that day obligated to show that same kind of mercy for every single person that commits that infraction and comes to him? No, not at all. He's a just judge to show mercy to none, to show mercy to all, and to show mercy to some. What we see is that, in fact, mercy presupposes justice, and we must simultaneously uphold God's justice and God's mercy to understand who he is as God. You could say it something like this, that God's sovereignty in salvation displays the justice and mercy of God towards sinners. That God's sovereignty in salvation displays the justice and mercy of God towards sinners. Now, we'll be looking at Romans 9 this morning, but it's important for us to understand that Romans 9 through 11, these chapters are really taken as a whole unit. And so Romans 9, if we were to just focus on Romans 9 and act like Romans 10 doesn't exist at all, that, that we might be tempted to emphasize God's sovereignty at the complete neglect of human responsibility whenever it comes to salvation. And if we were to only look at Romans 10 and, and forget that Romans 9 exists or Romans 11 exists, then, then we might find ourselves emphasizing that, you know, well, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so our human responsibility is emphasized at the expense of God's complete sovereignty over everything, including salvation. And what we will find as you follow, as you trace what's going on here through Romans 9 through 11, is that these concepts are complementary, not contradictory. Uh, what we see is that ultimately this unit leads Paul to worship, that he finds himself at the end of chapter 11 saying, oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And so our conclusion, as we behold the God that is greater than ourselves, is worship. It's awe, it's humility, it is praise. And with that being said, I want to look at Romans 9. Now we're actually going to begin at uh, verse 1 and just run through the first 13 verses just to have a, a feel for where we're at. Uh, the first thing that I want you to see is that as Romans 8 comes to a close, we hear Paul uh, in his heart breaking for his kinsmen, for fellow Jews who have not received the gospel, who don't personally know Christ and have a relationship with God through him. So pick up with me in verse 1. 
Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, Paul is saying here that that the Jews have received all of these things. And the question that is going to arise with this, you know, hypothetical opponent, the hypothetical person that is offering questions to Paul is, how has God been faithful to keep his promise to Israel to save them if you're saying that all of the promises that we've seen so far apply to both Jew and Gentile? That in fact, there are some who are ethnic members of Israel that will not be saved, who do not belong to God. Can you say that God is unfaithful, that he hasn't kept his promise? And he's going to say, God has kept his promise because God has kept his promise to Israel, but being a part of Israel is not a matter of ethnicity. It is a spiritual reality. It is a disposition of the heart. It is a person who belongs to Christ, be it Jew or Gentile. They are included in the promises of Israel because Christ is the true Israel, and we are now grafted into him. And so with that background, we'll keep going. Paul says in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Right? God, is, God is faithful. He's kept his promises. He says, for not all who descended from Israel ethnically belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told that the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You see, what we see in this passage is that Paul is proving his point by referring to Abraham. Abraham had a son before Isaac named Ishmael. And what did God say? It is through Isaac that I will keep the promises that I made to you. He's not keeping those through Ishmael, the firstborn son from one of his servants. No, he keeps this promise through Isaac, the son that God chose. And then he goes into the story of Jacob and Esau. And while they were still in the womb, he told Rebekah that Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The, The older will serve the younger. Uh, completely apart from any of their doing before they had done good, before they had done bad, God sovereignly chose to love Jacob and to reject Esau. And so God is saying, this is, this is consistent. I mean, who was more ethnic Israel than both Jacob and Esau? And yet what we see here is that God has chosen Jacob and hated Esau. Well, then that leads us to verses 14 through 18, and I want to be brief here because Jimmy touched on this last week. If you didn't listen to last week's sermon, I highly encourage you to listen to it. But I want to reveal four concepts through the remainder of our passage, and the first one is a perceived paradox. Is God just or is he merciful? This is the perceived paradox that Paul is wrestling with. Uh, People are asking, well, 
well, is this, is this just for God to do, to, to choose one, to show mercy to one and not to the other? Pick up with me in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Meganoita, Jimmy's favorite word. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. What we find here is that God is both just and merciful, that these two attributes of God are not at odds because of the simplicity of God God can simultaneously show both of these aspects of his character, like pure light that shines through a stained glass window, appearing both blue and red. God is completely pure to show both his just and his mercy with no contradiction. That these things can be shown simultaneously and give us a picture of who God is. Consider for a moment what mercy is, because mercy presupposes justice. See, justice is is getting what we deserve. Justice is getting the penalty deserved for transgressing the law. So what is mercy? Mercy is simply not getting what we deserve. And so for mercy to be comprehended, we must have a clear view of justice. Mercy by nature is always completely void of obligation. And I think that's where sometimes we might bristle with a text like this and we'll say, well, well this isn't fair. And, and whenever we think that, we are almost thinking that we are entitled to God's mercy, like the, that we somehow are owed the mercy of God. But what we see here is that mercy is always free of obligation. If it was obligated or merited in any way, then it would no longer be mercy at all. Uh, imagine for a moment that there was a woman who was a millionaire, had millions of dollars, and uh, she drove to a high school, a local high school one day, and she walked in and, you know, there were a, a crowd of students in, in the hall and she chose 10 of them and said, uh, you 10 students are going to have your college completely paid for. Now, could we say, well, that's not fair. Well, why didn't she give a full ride scholarship to 20 of the students? You also say, why didn't she only give it to five? See, it is, it is merciful and gracious. It is kind to bestow that gift upon anyone. She cannot be charged with being unfair because there was no obligation to give it in the first place. And that's what we see here whenever God says, I can show mercy to whom I show mercy. I can show compassion to whom I show compassion. Let us not forget that what is being quoted here is Exodus 33, 19. Now, Exodus 33 is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, because what you see is that God has redeemed his people from the oppression of Israel. He's leading his people through the wilderness to the promised land. And then what happens whenever Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the 10 commandments, the people sin against God, they doubt God's goodness, they craft a golden calf and begin to worship it as God. And Moses comes down, God says, these are a stiff necked people. And yet what we find is that God shows them grace. As Moses is speaking to God, he begs that God would show him his glory. He wants to see who God is. And that is whenever we read the words, 
I will make all my goodness pass before you. This is God saying this to Moses. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And I think we often read that statement almost as if there is a tone of reluctancy in the voice of God. Like he's saying, well, look, Moses, like, like this time, but I'm not gonna be gracious to everyone, right? Like you're gonna see a little bit of my mercy here, but not a whole lot of mercy. That's not God's tone at all. Like he has just caught the people that he has already redeemed out of slavery, turning to idols. He has caught them red-handed in the act of spiritual adultery. Justice demanded that they would be put death on the spot. Justice demanded that actually no one would ever live after Adam and Eve sinned because the wages of sin is death. God has already shown mercy upon mercy to them. You know what God is saying here? You are going to be amazed by the way that I show my mercy. You're gonna be awestruck by the way that I pursue people who have made a complete wreck and mess of their lives and turn them into trophies of my grace. You are going to see those who are lost, completely bound for hell, where it looks like there's absolutely no hope for them and I'm going to show mercy to that person and I'm going to show grace to that person in a way that will make you in awe of how good I am. Isn't that our story? God's not reluctant to show mercy. The fact that we would be sitting here that we could call the God of the universe who is transcendent above all Father is an act of unbelievable mercy and grace. Because what do we deserve? We deserve punishment. If we were just to receive justice, then none of us would know God. And because mercy is completely unobligated, God would be completely fair and just with three righteous potentials. He could show mercy to none and he would be completely righteous and just. He could show mercy to some and he would be completely righteous and just. Or he could show mercy to all and he would be completely righteous and just. But he can make absolutely any of those decisions and be under no accusation from us that he is not a just God because he is just. And because this is true, how thankful should we be for the mercy of God? He says it not, has nothing to do with human will or exertion. You weren't more lovable than someone else. You weren't more open-minded to the gospel. It's not like you were chosen because, man, your skill set would be really useful for bringing other people into the kingdom of God. No, completely apart from anything in you, God has shown his mercy in you. You were elected as a part of God's kind mercy and grace, completely undeserved. It reminds me of the church of Corinth. We talked about this passage a little bit in the, in the middle of this week. These people that Paul calls saints, even though they had committed heinous sins against God. And he shows the way in which two people would hear the same gospel message and, and respond in completely different ways. He says in 1 Corinthians 1:18 that the word of the cross, the, the message of the gospel, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Two people hear the same message and respond in completely different ways. It's, it's as the Puritans used to say that the same sun has the ability to melt the wax and harden the clay. That some people will be hardened as they hear this message that they are sinners in need of a savior and other people will be softened that such a savior exists. Paul goes on to describe the way that both the Jews and the Gentiles reject the message of the gospel. He says the Jews, they demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
He says, many will stumble over this message, but for those who take hold of it, they are children of God and they are saved. That should cause us to praise God. No, no doing of our own. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. As I was praying this again and again before the Lord this morning, I, the phrase that came to mind was like, Lord, I don't deserve to be here, but because of Christ, I will never be anywhere else. Like, I don't deserve to be in your presence. I don't deserve to call you Father. God, I don't deserve to be united with Christ. I don't deserve to be here, but because of Christ, I will never be anywhere else. I will never know the fear of hell. I will never know the taste of death. So what do we see? What is the purpose of God's wrath then? Look at me with verses, at verse, verses 19 through 29. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If, if God chooses to give mercy to some and hardens others, well, why do we still find fault with those who are sinners before God? He says, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. I think this passage is harder to receive than it is to understand. Right? That's why Romans 9 is, is the way it is. I, I, th I think it's relatively clear. I think it's harder to receive than it is to understand. And here we find the purpose of God's choosing to display his wrath, his power, and mercy to all. Ultimately, to display the riches of his glory. Why does God choose to display his wrath, his power, and his mercy, ultimately to display his glory. Here, Paul anticipates the question that, that some will say, well, if God is sovereign, if he, if he chooses to give compassion to some and, and some remain in their sin and God is sovereign over that, then how can we find fault with those? And uh, maybe that's a question that you have yourself asked. And what I want us to do here is take a note from Paul that he is, he is, has great reverence before God, that he understands that we are man, we are human, and that God is God. So he responds and says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Now, he's going to answer the question here in a moment. But the first thing that he wants to do is to remind us that we are God and cannot make accusation against who God is 
and what God does. This is reminiscent of Job, isn't it? You get to the later chapters of Job, and what we, what we hear is Job questioning why God has done what God has done, how his sovereignty is at work in the midst of it all, and then God responds to Job and says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Is it, is it your voice that thunders when you speak, or is it my voice that thunders when I speak? You see Job in humility put his hand over his mouth. Can't believe that he even had, had the nerve to bring an accusation against who God is. And, and God says, the lightning bolts in the heavens, they ask me where they should go. They wait on my word. Who are you to answer back to God? And we find Job coming in and saying, you know, God, you're right. You are God alone. For what I can't comprehend when your ways are higher than my ways, my response is not to question you or to accuse you, but to bow in humble reverence. And what I want us to understand is that this is good for us. Like God is being kind in the way that he, that he models for us how we should approach him whenever we don't fully understand what's going on. This isn't like your parent that, that might, you know, at, at some point in your life has, has just said, because I said so, right? And just kind of shrugs it off. No, God is saying, you can trust me. Like when, when you can't trace my hand, you can trust my heart. I'm always good. I'm always working out my will with great wisdom and it is always for my glory. And so, so trust me. That's the invitation here to trust God who is God and admit that we are not and I think maybe even some of us were like, yeah, okay, for, for the sovereignty of salvation, sure, I can trust God. But, it, but maybe it's something else in your life right now. And you're like, I, I mean, I, I really don't know. It's hard for me to trust God's plan in the life stage that I'm in or in the sickness that my child has or in the, in the difficulty that I'm going through at work. And I think what this passage calls us to do just by way of application is say, if I can trust God for forever, then I can trust God for today. Like if I can trust God with my complete eternity for forever, then I can trust God with whatever is going on today. And so we can bring no accusation before God. The same word here is used of, of the way that the Pharisees, uh, you know, maybe desired to bring an accusation against Christ whenever he heals the man on the Sabbath day. And he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And the scripture says they could, they could answer nothing against him. They can make no contradiction. They can say, well, you, well, you can't do that. That's wrong to do. No, they, they were silent. Now, what I also want you to understand here is that it is not always sinful to ask God questions. So much of our prayer life is approaching God humbly and, and asking questions. What Paul is not saying here is that you can never approach God with sincere curiosity. No, he's saying you can't approach God here with accusations. If there is any, anything that feels contradictory, then it is a matter of our comprehension, not contradiction, right? So, so we're the one that needs to change. We're the one that lacks understanding. It's not that God is somehow wrong or confused. This also shows us that you know, we, can, we can come to God with our questions, but we can't question God's actions, right? So, so you can humbly come to God and have questions, but you can't question God's actions because he alone is God, and so what do we see here? Paul uses a familiar word image, uh, most likely arising from Isaiah 45. Picture a potter who has one kind of bigger lump of clay, and then he separates that into two lumps of clay. Now, does he take each of those lumps of clay 
and hold it up to his ears and say, well, what do you want to be? Oh, all right. That sounds good. What do you want to be? Oh, I didn't expect that. Okay. No, he, he doesn't do that because the potter has the right over the clay. The potter has the authority to make whatever he desires out of the clay. Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Can God not take from the same lump of clay and, and fashion a, a vase out of one lump that will hold beautiful flowers? Uh, this great vessel for honorable use? Can he not take uh, another lump of clay and, and fashion it into an ordinary wash basin? Well, he can do whatever he desires. Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Why does God show mercy to some and not others? He gives us three reasons by way of a rhetorical question here. To show his wrath, verse 22. To make known his power, verse 22. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory. Why does God choose some and not others? For these three reasons. First, to make known his wrath. There is a logical order in this. Right. How, how are we to know the seriousness of sin, the egregious nature of sin? If, if the moment that Christ died, the, the wrath of God completely ceased to exist toward sin at all, then how would we comprehend just how egregious the cosmic treason of our rebellion is? We will only know the wrath of God in the way that the justice of God is fully displayed through the wrath of God by seeing the penalty that comes from sin and the punishment that is justly deserved. Sin is no light thing. I think sometimes we just think that sin is like a mistake, something we messed up in, but behold the wrath of God towards sin and realize, oh, sin. Sin against a holy God cannot be, be exaggerated. It is unbelievably, unbelievably terrible. But to understand the wrath of God also provides the backdrop in which we understand God's power and God's glory shown through his mercy. Now, let's, let's think about it for a moment. Uh, power is understood in relation to an opponent. Okay, so, so the strength that is revealed through power is always made known through the strength of the opponent. They're always related. Now, think about this. It's college football season, and so this might be an easy way for us to think through this. Maybe you've seen some team that's undefeated. They're on a tear, and you're like, man, like, they look really good. And then you hear somebody say, yeah, but look at their strength of schedule. Like, they don't play anybody. Why? Why do we say that? Because someone might, someone might appear strong, and then we realize, well, but the opponents that they're defeating are, are weak. The opponents that they're defeating don't really reveal that much strength. Okay, well, understand then that as the wrath of God has revealed that sin is not just a mistake or a mess up, but has eternal consequences. That whenever sin entered the world, it broke everything. It broke the entire universe. Things do not function as they were designed to. Now behold the power of God if he can reverse the effects of sin. 
If death seems like the most permanent consequence of sin that there is, and Jesus walks out of the tomb, that's power. You see, the disciples were impressed whenever Peter's stepmom was sick with a fever and Jesus goes and heals it. But whenever they're in the middle of a fishing boat at sea and they think that their lives are on the line and Jesus wakes up from a nap and says, peace be still, and the waves are shushed. They say, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Whose presence are we in right now? That's no ordinary man. Only God can do this. You see, it is only through the strength of the opponent that the power of God is seen. And whenever Jesus says the curse of sin, its effect on all humanity, all who would come to trust in me, I'll take a Friday afternoon and in six hours, I'll wipe away its consequences. That's power. That someone can curse God until the day that they die and on their deathbed have one conversation with Jesus and spend the next billions of years in the presence of God. Only God can do that. That's power. How are we to know the power of God if we don't see the wrath of God on display? And we only see that power if sin and suffering exists. And the final thing we see is that this reveals the riches of God's glory. Why does he do this? Why does he endure with patience these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? It's order to make known the riches of his glory. You see, the greater the consequence of sinning against God the greater we comprehend the mercy that God shows to those who justly deserve it. If if the consequence of sin was a a $100 fine, then we'd be like, okay, well then sinning against God is worth about $100. That's that's how much that mercy and that grace is worth, about 100 bucks. If, if, If the wrath and the just punishment for sinning against God was 10 days in prison, well, whenever we had the next 10 days of freedom, we'd be like, wow, that's, that's great. Like God is, God is really merciful. But whenever the penalty and just consequence for sinning against God is eternal death and separation from his gracious presence in the place of hell, then whenever we receive mercy, we say, his mercy is more. Like that song comes flowing to our lips because we say, oh, the depth of the mercy of God that has been displayed through his glory. You see, we understand God's glory in relationship to the consequence of his justice. So why doesn't God choose to be merciful to all? Well, in the same way that we best appreciate a a sunny spring day after a cold and blistering winter, we can only rightly comprehend God's grace and mercy, the fullness of his glory, in light of the backdrop, the dark backdrop of sin. I know that you guys talked about this this morning in the problem of evil class in apologetics. But verse 23 reveals to us that the reason that, the, that evil exists is to display the fullness of God's glory. It's a common question we get, right? Well, why does evil exist? Uh, why, why is God sovereign over everything? And then the fall took place in the garden and sin entered into the world and all of these things are broken. Like, like how can God be good and then that he ordain that these things take place. What is for the greater good that we would comprehend the fullness of his glory? If, if there are no sinners and there is no sin, then how would we ever know the mercy of God? You can't. 
How, how would we ever know the grace of God? For us to see who God fully is, sin must exist because there would be attributes of God that we wouldn't know and attributes of God that he didn't show if sin did not exist. How could you know the peace of God if suffering never came? You would not know that aspect of who God is. How could you know the comfort of God if there was no discomfort from a broken world? How would we know the humility of Christ if sin had never required the incarnation of Christ and his humble death on the cross, for us to comprehend the full riches of God's glory, evil, the absence of good, must exist. And so God ordains it for the ultimate purpose of him receiving glory. Now, here are some, some thoughts to hold in tension with Romans 9, biblical truths. One, God does not sin, nor does he cause sin. God does not cause sin in the way that he is responsible for sin, forcing people to sin. We even see that in the life of Pharaoh. God hardens and Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Pharaoh was not like a great guy and he's like, oh, I really want to do the right thing, but now God's making me do the wrong thing. No, he wanted to sin against God. He wanted to reject God's command. And at the same time, God was hardening his heart. There, there's no contradiction in saying that God does not cause sin, nor is he tempted to sin, as James 1, 13 through 15 says. Second, we have to believe that God is in complete control or someone else is. If, if someone else can control what God does, then that person is now God and God is not. We also believe that every person is born with a sin nature. Jeremiah 17 describes the human heart as deceitfully wicked. If our heart was a compass, it would never point north apart from God. We always want to go away from God. Jer or Romans 5 says that we were born with a sinful nature from Adam. Like left to our own, we will always pursue sin without God's intervention. This is why verse 22 can use a divine passive whenever it says that God endures with much patience. Right? Even the fact that he lets sinners continue to live as they are cursing his name is an act of patience. He endures with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Right? So, so he is the remote cause, if you will, of their sin. And they are the proximate cause. As, as Romans 1 says three times, that we give ourselves up to sin. That, that as God releases his restraint of grace, we, we dive further and further into sin. That God here is is the one working author over everything and that we are completely morally responsible for the sin that we choose. There will be no person in hell that does not deserve to be there because they chose to sin against a holy God. Scripture says that people harden their hearts and that God hardens their hearts. There are 20 references to Pharaoh's heart being hardened in Exodus. 10 of them are God hardening Pharaoh's heart's heart and 10 of them are Pharaoh hardening his own heart. These are complementary, not contradictory. And God is glorified equally through his wrath and his mercy. God is glorified equally through displaying his wrath and showing his mercy. Uh, whenever we read Isaiah 6, 3, we read the words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. What is the glory of God? It is whenever the attributes of God are displayed to man. Whenever we see who God is. That is for God to be glorified. And so whenever God shows his wrath and his justice, God gets glory. When God shows his mercy and grace, he gets glory because he is making himself known. So what is our response? His worship is humble worship. 
We are like Moses who realizes he is on holy ground, takes off his sandals. So I'm in the presence of God and worship the great I am. We're like Job who puts our hands over our mouth and say, I can't understand all of this. I can't comprehend all this, but you are God and I am not. And so I will revel in the godness of God. The third thing that we will see from this passage is that the promise has been kept. This is the personal nature of the mercy of God to anyone who believes. The personal nature of the mercy of God to anyone who believes. Perhaps some of this has felt more like an intellectual exercise or maybe the dissection of theological semantics. And you're like, this really isn't stirring my affections, but perhaps I'm, I'm learning a lot of things. And what I want you to see is that if you feel like this, verse 24 could not be more personal to you than it is. Because what does Paul say? Even us. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the children of God. He's talking to people who've been saved by this mercy. And he says, this isn't hypothetical salvation. These, these aren't just vessels of wrath and honor and mercy that I'm causing you to think about. No, I'm talking about you. That even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He said there were, there, there were Jews and Gentiles in this church. There were some Jews who thought that they had received the law to make themselves righteous before God, and they realized, I can never keep this law in complete perfection. Praise God for the Savior that has come. And there were Gentiles in the church who once worshiped false God, who maybe just months before this letter was written, were stumbling out of Apollo's temple in a drunken stupor. And now Paul says, look at us. Look at those whom God has extended his mercy to, that we would be family, that we would be the people of God. Then he refers to the story of Isaiah, quoting from Hosea 1 and 2. You may remember the story of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet that God told to display his love for the people of Israel by, by telling him to go and marry a prostitute. He said, I want you to go and marry a prostitute who will be unfaithful to you, and as evidence of that unfaithfulness and your covenant love toward her, people will understand how I love Israel in the midst of their rebellion. Now imagine how Hosea's heart was grieved whenever Gomer was unfaithful, and then he notices that she has a baby bump. He says, that's, some, that's another man's child. You've been unfaithful in a way, and now there's an illegitimate child coming from that relationship. That happens not once, but twice. And, and God tells Hosea to name these two children Lo Ruhamah, which means not my people, the quotation in verse 25. And then he, he says, I want you to name the other child Lo Ami, which means not my beloved. These children would be evidence of shame, of unfaithfulness for Hosea all the days that he would live, but it would also carry with it a promise. Because after he says, name these children these names, in chapter one it goes to chapter two, and then he says, but you know what? I'm doing something here. Because those who were not my people, that kid that brings tears to your eyes because he doesn't look a thing like you, I'll call them my people. He'll have a seat at my table. You're going to be proud of him. You're going to love him. Like that kid never expected to be loved before by somebody else that didn't care about him. That kid that was called not my beloved, nobody wanted him, that you pursued, I'm going to call him my beloved. He could take my last name. 
Don't give him any other person's last name. I will make him an evidence of my unending steadfast love and mercy. And then God looks at Israel and says, that's you. God looks at the Gentiles who would one day come and he says, that's you. You who are once not my people, I will call my people. You who are once not loved and illegitimate children, you will be called sons of the living God. And then he goes, he refers to Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, this quote from Israel 10, 22. It says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as sand on the, of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. He's saying God has been gracious to preserve a remnant Although ethnic Israel be great, God is still going to do something significant. We'll see in a couple weeks with Israel. He is saying that true Israel is spiritual Israel. And God has reserved for himself a remnant and called them to himself that they would be spared, that they would receive his grace. How is this grace received? By faith. Briefly look at me, or look with me at verses 30 through 33. Paul says, what shall we say then? then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Some of the Jews perhaps would say, well, why are the Gentiles now being included? He says, because righteousness, as he already said in Romans 4, comes by faith. Israel, who pursued a law, verse 31, that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. He says that the Israelites thought that God gave them the law in many ways to try to earn their righteousness. And he said, no, it was as a way to trust me and to say, live by faith in that these rules and commands are good for you. But as verse 32 says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God is saying, I'm putting a, a stone in Zion. He will replace the temple. He will be the true one in whom worshipers worship. And if you build your life on him, you will not stumble. See, some will hear this gospel message and they will be humbled by it and some will stumble over it. And he says, but all who are truly mine will respond to this message. We find here that the paradox of justice and mercy is resolved ultimately in the person of Christ. It feels like a paradox that God would be both just and merciful, and that paradox is resolved in the person of Jesus Christ. Moses marvels at the mercy of God that he saw in sparing the people of Israel. But for those of us who stand on this side of the cross, we see a greater moment in which God displays both his mercy and his justice. As Romans 3 says, God is both the just and the justifier of sin. Psalm 85.10 puts it poetically as it says that justice and mercy kiss. And that takes place on the cross. That Jesus would bear the complete penalty of God's just wrath in our place. And that that would be the greatest picture of God's mercy that would ever exist, is that he would take our sin upon his shoulders whenever we deserved death, that justice would declare us condemned and Christ comes to take that condemnation in our place so that we could trust in him and live. As author Milton Vincent says, I have nothing 
to offer to ransom my soul. But wonder of wonders, so great to behold. My God chose to save me with methods so bold. What I could not render, my God has fully done. In doing, he rendered it all through his son. He sent Christ to die on the cross for my sin, to suffer my anguish, my pardon to win. Amazing it is when I stop to regard that God would consent to an anguish so hard, surrendering his own son unto mayhem and death, to torturous writhing till his final breath. Why does God forsake me alone, Jesus cried. Yet God left him hanging until he had died that Jesus was willing his life to lay down, to be scourged and insulted and wear a thorny crown. For one such as I, who had spited God so, amazes and blesses and makes me to know that greater a lover is no man than he who laid down his life for a sinner like me. Oh, the depth of the riches of God in his mercy shown to those who deserve just wrath. Maybe you're wondering, well, if God is sovereign over sin, then why share the gospel? Well, if God, if God is sovereign over salvation, why share the gospel with others? And I think that because God is sovereign over salvation, you should have great confidence in sharing the gospel. We don't know who is God's elect and who is not. You see, whenever Paul was preaching in Corinth, he was about ready to just hang it up. And then Jesus appeared to him and said this, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Paul's like, no, no one believes here. I mean, there, there are no Christians here. And what does Jesus say? No, go on preaching. Don't be silent. Why? Because there are many in this city who are my people. And what will happen is that Paul will take that message to heart. He will spend the next 18 months ministering in Corinth, and Corinth will become a place in which a church is birthed because many people in that city were God's people. We evangelize with great confidence because we know that it doesn't rely on our persuasiveness or kind of getting every single thing perfect in the conversation, but we are simply the tool that God uses to make his salvation known to others. That there are many in Cincinnati who are God's people. You work with them, you live with them, they are your family members, they are your friends. And as you share the gospel, the scales will fall off their eyes and they will believe because they belong to God. That makes me want to run out those doors right now and share the gospel with people because his word will not return void. It's like, it's like the story of, of this homeless man named Max Melitzer. And he was there in, in the middle of Salt Lake City at this park. And he's got everything that he thinks belongs to him in a shopping cart. But what he didn't notice is that, what he didn't know is that his brother had just died and left a six-figure inheritance to his name. A private investigator found him in the park, walked up to him and said, hey, you have a great inheritance. No longer live here. Something has been done completely apart from your work to give you a completely new life. That's the gospel that we proclaim to those who have yet to receive it, but belong to God and will. Maybe you're, you're sitting here wondering, well, am, am I one of the elect? How, how do I know? Well, do you feel God stirring your heart right now? Do you desire to follow Jesus? If so, then yes. If this gospel seems like good news to you, then follow God. Maybe you're wrestling with this right now. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11, to make your 
calling and your election sure. He says, look at the fruit of your life. You shouldn't struggle with assurance if you're a Christian. This, this should not bring any kind of like, oh, oh no, I don't know if I'm in or out. No, you should be able to make your calling and, and election sure by, by looking at the fruit of your life. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What is that fruit? First, it's faith in Christ. He, he did everything on my behalf. It's nothing in my work. It's knowledge about God and who he is. It's self-control. It's steadfastness in the midst of suffering. It's godliness. It's brotherly affection to other people in the family of God. It's love. And by these things, you confirm your calling and election. And this silences our boasting and prompts us to praise because we worship the God who has revealed the riches of his mercy and the depth of his justice to call us his own. Let's pray.